Hey, thank you, Kim and Elise. I know those people. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 together. We've been studying through Ephesians, and this passage begins with, therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you have to wonder what it's there for. And this one's actually kind of difficult. Like, why does this start off with a therefore in Ephesians 2.11? And I think that it goes back to earlier in the verses when it talks about what Christ has done, and some of your translations don't bring this out, that he's raised us up together with him, seated us together with him in Christ uh, Jesus. Um, And so this idea is that it's not just individual. There's something very corporate and connected and he's talking about these good works that he's created us for us to do. Well, he's created a context for that to happen. And the context is the church. He's created this new humanity uh, called the church. So I think that's where the therefore is going. So therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Let me pray for us. Father, as we look now at your word, we pray that it would have the gravity that it deserves and the weightiness, and that we would be sober before you. And we ask that, Lord, we would yield good fruit for the sake of your name. Give us hungry hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is beginning here in Ephesians chapter two. This is kind of a little bit of a repeat. Verses one to 10 are more about the individual problem and then 11 to to 22 is dealing with a corporate problem and also the answer now that's in Christ. But the problem is described and you have these words that are brought out like dividing wall of hostility, separated, alienated, no hope without God. This is both a vertical problem, but it also has a big horizontal problem, and Jesus Christ fixes both. And so 
it's so easy to kind of just jump over the obvious, but the Jews and the Gentiles, they hated one another. That was their natural uh, outlook towards one another, the way that they saw one another. And Titus 3.3, and talking about our conversion, just kind of a summary statement says this, we are, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And maybe we have a hard time seeing how it's really true about ourselves. But our natural disposition is that there are certain people that we hate and there are certain people that hate us. There are reasons for this hatred. There always is, but the hatred always stems from a down root, deeper root of pride. And in this situation, it was, for the Jews, it was uh, God made a covenant with us, uh, not you, We have the mark of circumcision, not you. Therefore, you are called the uncircumcision. Notice the quotes. We are special and you are not. And so the Jews elevated this privileged status as God's covenant children, just as we can easily do in the church because we are called now his covenant family. And it's easy for the people in the church to look down at those that are Uh, that we see that we don't like. And we can look down in arrogance and pompous pride just as uh, the Jews did. Instead of compassion and mercy towards those who are outside the covenant community. And as a result, the outsiders, when they look at the church and they feel alienated and despised, they look at these, the people in the church and if they had to describe it in one word, they'd say hypocrites. An external religion, a lack of love and compassion, and when they see anything that looks like church schism or split, boy, do they hate that. Well, William Barclay actually kind of describes this alienation between the two communities as deep-seated hostility, and he says this, just to kind of drive this home, that the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. And it was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of, a, of death. So if you're wondering, you know, why was it so hard for, for Jonah to go and preach to these Ninevites? It's go and preach to pagans because he was afraid they might repent. That's why he didn't want to go to them. And David, even in his defiance against Goliath, he he made it clear this is an uncircumcised Philistine. And in Saul's death, you remember he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and mistreat me. When the Jews built the temple, they made this huge wall of, and this is the temple in Jerusalem, before it was destroyed in 8070, they had this huge wall of partition 
that separated out Jews from Gentiles. So if you wanted to come and, and be a part of, you basically you'd have to convert to be a Jew, you'd have to receive the mark, but it, you could only get so close. You were still kind of an outsider. You could only get so close to God. And the, and the wall had a sign that said, and actually if you put the picture up, that there's actually, uh, we actually were able to dig this thing up in 1871 and then in 1935, archeologists have found uh, this, some of the pieces of the wall of partition. This one's actually even got the writing on it and that's at the museum in Istanbul. And it says, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. This is not exactly seeker friendly, okay? Uh, the, you, there were very clearly, so when, when Paul talks about a dividing wall of partition, very relevant. Well, in today, as you think about, as you kind of jump to our culture, isn't it interesting that so often neighboring countries kind of despise each other? Kind of like the U.S. and Cuba back in the 60s with nu nukes aimed at each other. But today you have these animosities. You've got South Korea and you've got North Korea. You've got Serbia and Croatia and Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Palestinians. And you have China and Japan and they hate each other due to the South China Sea conflict. And I was reading online this week, according to the Pew Research Center, that 95% of Japan shows hatred towards China and 81% of China shows hatred towards Japan. The article went on to say that both nations, however, watch anime and eat Chinese foods. They were trying to be funny. That's not going to be enough to unite them, is it? You know, I had a friend in, in, um, when I was living in Greenville, South Carolina, and he was Indian, and he was looking for a used car. And he called up this guy, and, and it turned out when he got to looking at the car, whenever he looked at it, the guy was from Pakistan. And my friend, Jeej, he was like, hey, we're neighbors, you know, like, you know, I'm from India, you're from Pakistan. He said the guy was really cold towards him. And so when it kind of fell through and he called his parents and he was like, you know, because he had grown up all his life in the States. And he called his parents and said, what's up with that? And they said, Jijo, are you, are you kidding me? Pakistanis and Indians, they hate each other. <laughs> and you're trying to say, oh, we're like neighbors? <laughs> that wasn't going very well. I can remember when in Greenville, we once were knocked on the doors in the, in the apartment complex right across the street from the church. We were inviting people to our church. And I met a lady on one side that was from Iraq. And I was like, wow. And I got over to the other side and I met another lady and she was from Iraq. And I said, oh, have you met so-and-so over there? And she said, I'm a Sunni. She's a Shiite frozen, uh, it didn't go very well after that. So you see this idea is that this hatred is countries hate each other, classes often hate each other, well the rich will despise the poor and the, the poor can hate those rich one percenters who get all those loopholes and tax breaks and political parties can begin to really hate each other. I didn't watch the the Trump speech this week, but my understanding wasn't, there was very few times where both sides of the aisle were clapping at the same time. Uh, there was, there's still this great hatred. Uh, we can have companies that hate each other because they're in competition, and often even inside a company where you work, 
You have often a sales department that hates the accounting department and billing department, and then the HR department, well, that's a whole other headache. And the mechanics, how, they, how do mechanics talk about the parts department? And management will often look down on the workers, and the workers often look down on management, and you are often caught right in the middle of this, and your job is to kind of make peace. Well, in Paul's day, the Greeks despised those who lived outside of the cities. They were called pagans, ethne, same word used here. The Jews despised the ethne because they weren't Jews. They were the nation. They were the uncircumcised, and they didn't have the mark of the covenant. They were despised. So Paul comes along preaching the gospel because he's preaching the gospel of what Christ has done. Christ has the answer to fix this huge problem that exists from the top down, from countries all the way down to the little crevices in our hearts. And it's that the gospel is uniting all things, he says in chapter one, things in heaven and things on earth. And the struggle on earth is that there's people groups that are alienated. Jews and Gentiles were the big one in that culture. And so Jesus comes to fix that problem. And here are these Jews who are Gentiles, in particular, who were without hope, alienated. And then they become, by the, by the end of these verses, their fellow citizens, members of the household, a holy temple, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so Paul's using this once now paradigm and throughout the whole chapter. And so he's mainly speaking individually in the first 10 verses, but then he's speaking uh, horizontally and vertically as well in in verses 11 uh, to 22 to show us that we now belong, Jews and Gentiles. The cross unites us with God, it unites us with each other, and the barrier between Jew and Gentile was circumcision and these other ceremonial laws that the Gentiles weren't observing and therefore they were referred to as dogs. So... Jesus comes and shows that whether you think you're near or you're far, we're all under the cross. And there's only one way for us to come to God. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're all equal in that regard. We're all equally in need of a savior. And Jesus is an all-sufficient savior to save. And we're not saved by these marks and even the, the Old Testament was getting at that, that you could have this outward mark, but if you didn't have the inward mark of the heart, if you weren't circumcised in the heart, then it didn't matter. And so Paul is kind of going from the past to the present, you could even say the future here through these verses. So let's just dig in a little bit here. He's saying remember, remember. How many of you are, are Jews here this morning? Not too many. Most of us would qualify as Gentiles. So we can, we, can, we can say remember that we were separated. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were hopeless. We were godless. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying to remember. Not remember in a way that produces pride, glorying in our shame. But no, we're to remember in a way that produces gratitude, humility, and thankfulness. There's a big difference. Someone once said the essence of Christian theology is grace, but the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. We need to be grateful because look how far off we were and look where we've come. It's it's important to remember 
where we were. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, no man will ever rejoice in Christ as he should unless he realizes what his position was before he was a Christian. It's of no help to say you must, you must always be positive. He's saying you must start with a negative. If you don't realize what you were before God took hold of you, you will never praise him as you ought, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the essence of the gospel is that his blood can make the phallus clean, the phallist. His blood availed for me. We who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so there's a contrast here in comparisons. He says, once you were dead, Ephesians 2.1, now you're alive. Once you were under the dominion of, of Satan, in, in verse two, now you're seated in the heavenly realms. Once you were children of wrath, now you, have his, you were part of, partakers of his glorious inheritance. Once we were walking according to the world, the flesh and the devil, now we're walking in the good works prepared in advance because we're God's workmanship. Once we were separated and far off, now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once we were foreigners, now we're fellow citizens and there's no second class citizens in this society. Once we were aliens, now we're household members. Once there was hostility in our relationships, now there is peace and reconciliation. Once there was two groups, Jews and Gentile, and now there's just one new man because we're one body of Christ, because the one body, Jesus, went to the cross and killed the hostility, and now we have the one Holy Spirit living and abiding in us. And so he's making clear that we once were alienated, and Colossians 1.21 just sums it up, that you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that's where we were. And we were radically separated from God, from our sins. So it says he, he will not hear us, Isaiah 59 says. And so we have this radical alienation from God, our creator, but that alienation also alienates us from one another, our fellow creatures. And John Stott said there's nothing more dehumanizing than this breakdown of fundamental human relationships. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we are so alienated, we don't even know it. But I was watching something this week, and somebody was saying that the founder of Netflix, do you know what he said the purpose statement of Netflix is? This just blew me away. What do you think would be the purpose of Netflix? I mean, if you're the, the CEO and you've got to come up with a catch statement, what is your purpose? And his answer was something to do with this will be a remedy from loneliness. Think about that. Really? That now that I'm connected to Netflix with live streaming 24-7, now I'm not lonely anymore? Nice try. But it doesn't work, does it? You're actually more lonely. So there's this breakdown, this fundamental breakdown, a disconnect between us and God, and then obviously towards one another, it, it manifests itself. And so what Christ has done as the solution is, is words that are brought out here like brought near. Our peace, we're both one. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and made peace. It begins with God. There has to be a reconciliation. And most of us think that reconciliation here is one-sided, but there's more. John Stott puts it like this. He says, it's a mistake to think that the barrier between God and us, which necessitated the work of rec reconciliation, was entirely on our side, so that we needed to be reconciled and God did not. 
True, we were God's enemies, hostile to him in our hearts, but the enmity was on both sides. The wall or barrier between God and us was constituted both by our rebellion against him and his wrath on, uh, upon us on account of our rebellion. So God had to remove the sin so that he could be reconciled to us. And so Jesus comes in, at the cross and he bears the wrath of God, removing this enmity by paying for it. And then he reconciles us. He takes away our sin as well, paying for it. And so God has to also change our hearts before we can be reconciled to him. And so what we see at the cross is that God is punishing sin and Jesus being fully cut off. Jesus is the one who experiences all of these terms here that are bad news. This idea of alienation and separated and without hope and without God. I mean, Jesus is crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing the utter alienation and the utter separation that we should have gotten for eternity, that we would be brought in. And that's for Jew and for Gentile. And so the cross is the answer to pride which manifests itself in thinking we're a little bit better. So we segregate, so we isolate. We have apartheid and racism and classes and caste and anti-Semiticism and bigotry and iron curtains and walls of China and on and on and on. You see, when Jesus died, the temple veil was torn in two. He tore down the wall of partition. And now there are no barriers. There shouldn't be any barriers of class, rank, position. That's why we were using those verses that we use this morning. There's not slave or free or Jew or Greek or male or female. We're all one now in Christ Jesus. And so we have this peace now. Jesus has come and he's reconciled us to the Father, but also reconciled us to one another. And now he's making a church. Now think about this. We're we're called here, and we'll go into this more next week, but when you think about the imagery that's used, is he's saying we are now, if you look at the very last verse, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, okay? So the imagery is that you're the temple. Well, if you're living in Ephesus, what's the big temple? I mean, the shadow of this thing was everywhere. It was the big temple of Diana, and that thing was just massive. You couldn't even get off the boat without seeing this huge pagan temple. And Paul comes along to these Ephesians and says, no, you're the temple. You Jews and you Gentiles who don't like each other, now you're being built together as a temple. And in the Old Testament, when they built something, when they finished building the tabernacle, what happened? God came down, Shekinah glory, end of Exodus. When they finished building the temple and they dedicated the temple and they finished building it and Solomon praised and dedicated it, what happened? God came down, couldn't even be in the place, Shekinah glory. What happens when we build the temple? The church is doing what it's supposed to do. And when we've accomplished our purposes, God's coming down and heaven and earth become one and it's gonna be Shekinah glory. And his glory's here now in part, right? But that's where we're going with this thing. That's the end of the story. And he's doing it through the church. 
by bringing all these people groups together. And, if he, and what he's talking about here is to a local church. You don't, he didn't say, okay, you, you Jews, you have your church over here, and you Gentiles, you have your church over here. He's saying, no, you're built together. And so it's very important that we work together as a church, different ethnicities, different people groups, different castes, different characters, but we love each other. That's the mark now of believers. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a prominent doctor, and he was very high up, and there's much more of a class system in England than here. And he had, he had nice, nice bloodlines, and he had a nice uh, job, and God called him away from that. And he said at one point, he said, I enjoy more hours of fellowship with another Christian who is as opposite as these fisherwomen are to me than talking with my peers, the people who are of the same ilk, the same education with me. He suddenly realized what could take a British ruling class person and do that? Answer, the gospel. Any of you guys heard of Matthew Henry, famous commentator? Some of you got his commentaries. Well, um, so his dad, Philip Henry, uh, when, his, when Matthew Henry's parents were courting, uh, Matthew Henry's mom, her parents were concerned that this guy, Philip, he's from the wrong side of the track. The girl that you know, he, he was dating, uh, who's gonna be Matthew Henry's mother, the mom, she was from Society Hill. She's from a very nice area. And so at one point, the parents of Matthew Henry's mother, they came to her and said, this Philip Henry whom you're dating, we're concerned. We don't know where he's from. We don't know who his parents are. And we don't know what part of the city he's really from. She looked at them and said, I don't know where he's from either, but I know where he's going. Amen. You see, what Paul is saying here, as he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, we regard no one now according to the flesh. We don't regard anyone now according to the flesh. And so Christians, we find more in common with, with uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ than if you've been plucked out and you have an unbelieving family where you've come from. You're like, this is more my family than my kin. Because these are our true brothers and sisters for eternity. And so as we come to the table today, let me just remind you what Christ has purchased. We have access to the King of Kings. I mean, that is such a wonderful privilege. We have access to God. I mean, what a joy to know that, that for Evie to be absent from the body, present with Jesus. Just like that. You have access now, but she's going to be right in his presence very soon. And, and so this privilege is something that we just take for granted. I mean, none of us today are saying, you know, today for lunch, I'm going to down, go downtown and, you know, I'd really like to have lunch with Mike Pence. I'd like to catch up with him today. I think I'll just go knock on his door and say, hey, let's have lunch. You think that would happen? How about if you want to meet with Trump for lunch? Go, go ring the bell at the White House. How do you think that would go? But we have that in Christ. All the divisions and distinctions have been broken down. Christ has purchased everything. Jesus is our good shepherd, and he said to us that he has other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so it'll be one flock, one shepherd. And we are a living manifestation of that one flock, one shepherd. Let's pray together.
Lord, you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to love one another. Pray that, Lord, you'd forgive us for those crevices of hatred that still exist in our heart. Give us love, we pray, to those that we disagree with, those that think differently than we do. Thank you, Lord, for the unity that you've purchased for us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this table to be reminded of this one loaf that we partake of together. We ask that you'd meet us now in Christ's name. Amen.